John chapter 17 and verse 17. John 17. All right, my battery's giving out, Eric. <laughs> I, I, it was green and now it's red. We were trying to do this every month. Okay. I'll stick close to the pulpit. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now we're going to begin uh, our uh, study in foundational training with the word of God because that's what the Westminster Standards do uh, as well. The Westminster Standards you can find in the back of your hymnal if you want to take a copy of your hymnal and turn to page 919. Now, the Westminster Standards are composed here of three parts. You have the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then you have what is known as the Larger Catechism and the Shorter Catechism. And we're going to be looking through the Westminster Confession of Faith here. It's going to be a kind of a survey. This is not uh, really in-depth, but it is to lay a foundation uh, for us, again, as a church. Now, many of you, I know, have already studied the Westminster Standards uh, before, and I do hope that uh, it will be still, nevertheless, a help, even for those of you who have been Presbyterians your whole life, uh, to reflect on some of these things that are written. Hopefully, some things will be brought forth that will be um, brought forth either in a new way or something maybe you hadn't ever considered before. It will still be a blessing to you. Look with me here at chapter 1, it's page 919, and you'll note here there are eight sections, excuse me, ten sections uh, to uh, chapter 1. What I want to do is just summarize quickly here in our introduction these ten sections, but then I want to talk about a lot of what's in here from the Scriptures themselves. So we're going to start off with the Confession, and then I want to go to the Scriptures uh, themselves. Now, first of all, what are the Westminster Standards? Where did they come from? Well, the Westminster Standards were written by what we call the Westminster Assembly. Uh, they were written in the year 1646 to 1648. This was in a time of crisis as a nation. England was in the midst of a civil war against Charles I and the Parliament. Charles was the king, and he had the Parliament, who was controlled chiefly by the Puritans. And during this time, the Parliament had decided that they wanted uh, to replace the 39 Articles, which was the creed and confession of the Church of England at the time. Their hope was that the Westminster Standards would be adopted by England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, bringing all of those nations under one common confession. As we've talked about in the past, it didn't work that way in God's providence, but God did do things beyond, I think, even what the Westminster divines were hoping for, even in their greatest aspirations. Because while in some ways it failed, um, nevertheless, today, more people um, who live in Asia and Africa subscribe to the Westminster Standards than do those of us who are descendants of uh, England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland uh, today. It's an amazing fact that uh, there are more Presbyterians today uh, in Asia and Africa combined uh, than there are uh, where 
Presbyterianism originated and has been uh, for the last few hundred years. So uh, I don't know that the Westminster divines, in their wildest imagination, uh, considered that outcome. But that's what God has done in his providence. Now, the Westminster Standards, like the 39 Articles of England, according to Chad Van Dixhorn, begin with Scripture. This is the longest chapter in the Westminster Standards. It begins talking about two things that you need to know, boys and girls. One is general revelation, and the other is special revelation. General revelation is like it sounds. It's very common, general. It's out there. The creation is a part of God's general revelation. So when you look at the trees, you look at the birds, you're watching National Geographic, and you're watching the cheetah chasing you know, the gazelle, you're watching general revelation. This is a part of God's creation that God has made. Now, obviously, the fall has impacted negatively the creation and the order that is within it. And uh, this is uh, being rectified by the death and resurrection of Christ and, and the building of his kingdom. But nevertheless, um, it reveals to us certain truths about who God is, about his existence, about his being, about his power, about his attributes. You learn that God is good. You learn that God is a God of order by general revelation. However, there's a fundamental problem, and that is that the creation is not sufficient to bring people to a saving knowledge of God himself. And that's why we need special revelation. That's why we need, boys and girls, the Bible. Because the Bible is the means that God uses to communicate the truth of his salvation in Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul takes this up in the book of Romans. How does the Apostle begin after his thesis statement in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 about the gospel? He begins with general revelation and that men know about the existence of God. But the problem is what in Romans 1? Paul says men suppress the truth about the creation in unrighteousness. And so, jump ahead to chapters 9 through 11, what does the apostle do? In Romans chapter 9 through 11, he explains uh, something of the mystery of the gospel as it relates to the Jews and to the Gentiles, but he also brings out the point that unless a preacher be sent, and unless missionaries go and bring the special revelation of God's word, they cannot be saved. And so this, while he begins with general revelation, he moves into the subject of special revelation in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and all the way through Romans 11, talking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> uh, our confession starts off with the Bible. Now, um, you can do systematic theology in various ways. There's usually a history and an order to it. Some begin with the doctrine of God. They could have started there, but they did decide, probably following the example of the 39 articles, to start with Scripture. So they give here, um, in uh, the confession here, you'll note a list of the books uh, that consist of the Old and New Testament and that they are given, you'll notice there, by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. We'll talk about that in a minute. In the third section, uh, they say that what? <coughs> the Apocrypha, which would have been books during the Maccabean period prior to the 
time of, of Christ um, are not to be considered as equal with the Word of God. Now, they might be helpful as any mere human book could be helpful, but they are not to be received as Scripture. Um, Jesus never cites any of the books of the Apocrypha. Jesus, um, in his day, the, the Scriptures that the Jews used in Jesus' day did not incorporate them into the canon. So the Apocrypha is not to be considered authoritative Number four, section four, the authority of the Bible is in God himself. R.C. Sproul has noted that God cannot appeal to anyone or anything above himself. So God uh, gives the authority to his own word by his own spirit. And therefore, the, the, the Bible uh, is sitting in judgment of us. As my New Testament professor, my Greek professor used to say, holding up the Bible in class, he said, you know, we sit under the Bible. We do not sit in judgment of the Bible as liberals do. Uh, liberals sit in judgment and they say, well, this part of the Bible is the Word of God and this part is not the Word of God. But our New Testament professor used to say, no, that the Bible sits in judgment of us. Um, and we sit under the authority of the Scriptures. In section 5, uh, it notes here, the Westminster Divines say, there are many evidences uh, for the Bible being the Word of God, but ultimately uh, the Spirit Himself is the authoritative witness. His Spirit, the Holy Spirit working with our Spirit, testifying to us that this is indeed the very Word of God. In the sixth section, you have the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, that is, that though some things are ordered by um, the light of nature, such as like what time we meet, 10.30 in the morning, 6 at night, um, nevertheless, the Scripture is sufficient for everything that we have need of in terms of life and faith as a Christian and as a church. Section 7, uh, while Section 6 is about the sufficiency of Scripture, Section 7 is about the perspicuity of the Scripture, Perspicuity of the Scripture. Now, what in the world, boys and girls, does that word mean? Perspicuity. Can you say perspicuity? If we can, perspicuity, yes. If we uh, could have uh, that Mr. Rogers moment there. Um, <laughs> perspicuity of Scripture means it's sufficiently clear in the things that pertain to the gospel. The, the Scripture has things that are hard to understand. The Bible does say that. Peter says that. Some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand, but that the things that are most important and the things that are most necessary for salvation are sufficiently clear. Then number eight, it talks about how the Bible was written in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, a little bit of Aramaic in both, but ordinarily Hebrew and Greek, and that the Bible should be in the vernacular language. That is, that the Bible is to be translated into the common tongue of all the different nations and people groups in the world. So that's why you have important groups like Wycliffe Ministries doing the work of, of translation. And then section 9, the Bible is the infallible rule uh, of interpretation. How do we interpret less clear passages in the Bible? 
Let's say, take Ezekiel or maybe something that from Daniel or Revelation, okay? I think we could all agree those are some of the harder books of the Bible, okay? Daniel writes some things that are pretty mysterious. Ezekiel definitely does. Ezekiel, man, he's a wild man. <laughs> uh, Ezekiel, and, and then, of course, Revelation. Uh, John writes a prophecy. All the, the, some of these prophetic books are difficult. So how do we understand what... You know, when John, for example, I've used this illustration before, when John speaks about the seven spirits before the throne, now you're going to get in serious doctrinal trouble if you seek to build your doctrine of the being of God around the seven spirits. And, 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 and um, you know, you want to redefine the Trinity. You know, that, that there's, you know, nine of them now. What, is, what does John mean by the seven spirits? Well, we know that... The, Revelation is a highly figurative book, and seven is a number of completeness, or it means set apart. The seventh day was a sacred day in the life of, of the Jews. So we know it, what John is saying here is he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. Well, the Trinity is more clear in other parts of the Bible. Take the Great Commission. Go in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them, right? Um, grace to you in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the love of the Father, and in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Those passages are clear about the Trinity here. So what it means is that we take the less clear passages and we interpret them in the light of the more clear. The, the harder passages have to be understood in the light of the easier passages to understand. So that's what perspicuity means. So if we're struggling for what one part of the Bible may be meaning, what we might want to do is begin with first principles and look at those things that are more clearly taught that might illuminate how we then come to this other subject here. If you don't do that, you can wind up in a world of heterodoxy, a world of trouble, and you don't want to end up there. So this is an important rule for interpreting the Bible. And then finally, uh, section 10, the Bible is the final judge and authority for the church as a body and for Christians. Scripture is our final authority. And I love how Joel Beakey um, speaks to this issue. He, he tells people, especially young people, he says, young people, get your Christianity from the Bible, not just what other young people are doing, even if they say they're Christians. Look to the Bible. Let the Bible be your authority for what you do uh, in uh, this life. Now, I want to talk now a little bit from Scripture uh, about this subject here. First of all, I want to speak about Scripture as the rule or the guide by which we glorify God. The Bible is God's Word. It is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. We are told this in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16. If you want to turn there to the pastoral epistles, 2 Timothy Chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God. Now that means that all Scripture, meaning that the entire autographa is the Word of God in the words of God. I remember this clearly as a very young Christian from uh, Pastor Joe Moorcraft when I lived in Atlanta. He would speak uh, to this subject, that the Word of God, excuse me, the Bible is the Word of God in the words of God. This is what we call plenary inspiration. 
All right, plenary inspiration means God spoke to us in the scriptures and that the details of the scriptures are the very words of God itself, the syntax, the grammar. It is all there inspired by God so that not one jot or tittle uh, is something other than the word of God. Jesus said that not one stroke from the law can go away until all things are fulfilled. Um, that the scriptures in its details are, are the very word of God. This is important because in the middle of the 20th century, the early part of the 20th century, we had a, a view of the scriptures which was known as neo-orthodoxy. Now, many of your mainline churches still hold the neo-orthodoxy. Now, they're not putting it out on a sign out in front of the church saying, come here, we're neo-orthodox. But if you listen closely to the pulpits of some of these churches, you will hear it. So, for example, um, I've used this in the past. The minister will stand up and he will say, listen for the word of God. Now, if you're not a very discerning Christian, you think, great, this man is speaking from the same page I am. But no, he's not. Did you hear what I said? Listen for the word of God. That's not what I say, is it? I say listen to the word of God. One little prepositional change makes all the difference. Because what is that neo-Orthodox minister saying? He's saying what I'm about to read may or may not be the word of God. It becomes the word of God as the spirit speaks to your soul. But what I'm reading here is not necessarily the very word of God in the words of God. This is the neo-Orthodox view. Now you have to realize neo-Orthodox people were concerned. They had some good motivation. They were trying to rescue um, the Bible as though the Bible needed rescuing. But they were trying to rescue Christianity and religion and the Bible from absolute unbelief. And so they, they felt that uh, given higher lower criticism coming from Germany and Europe, that, the, that Christianity needed to be uh, reimagined, if you will, rescued uh, from otherwise uh, it would just go completely away if, if, if these um, higher critics and lower critics prevailed. So they were trying to, in a way, I think, try to do something. And, and so they, they wanted people to still have a relationship with God. They still believe. But they, they said, though, that, that the Bible itself was not the word of God. Uh, the Bible uh, only became God's word in the act of preaching it, itself. And so if you read, for example, G.I. Williamson's commentary on the uh, confession or the catechisms, and he deals with the scripture, he has a cartoon, Shorty, you guys who have read, you know Shorty, right? Shorty is his main character. And, and Shorty is looking at the Bible, and the Bible has these solid lines going across it, meaning it's all the Word of God. But the neo-Orthodox view uh, of the Bible was dashed lines, continual but not continuous, meaning this, 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 this is the Word of God, but not that, 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 and that, if that makes some sense there. So uh, the Westminster Standards uh, are, are emphatic on this point that the entirety of the Bible is the Word of God. Now, it is true we don't have the autographa. We don't have 
the letter that was penned by the uh, emuensis of Paul. Remember, Paul often didn't write the letters. He dictated them. Remember, somebody else wrote them in hand. Now, we don't have personal copies of those letters, but what do we have? We have the manuscripts. And you say, well, pastors, I've heard that some of the manuscripts don't agree entirely with other manuscripts. Now, that there is some little truth to that. There are a few verses in different manuscripts that uh, don't line up with each other. How do we explain this? What do you do? How can you hold to inerrancy of Scripture if you don't have uh, these things uh, sorted out? Well, listen, I, you know, I've given the illustration. Let's say that President Biden writes uh, one of you children a letter. You wrote the president and said, President Biden, I'm praying for you and just want you to know that. And you get a letter back from the White House. You open it up and you're like, wow, President Biden responded to my letter. And uh, so your mom, being a good you know, homeschool mom, she said, well, we're going to do a class assignment. And we're going to uh, put the letter up there and everybody is going to copy that letter. And you're going to write your own copy of it. And what happens? Well, you, you write, you know, you uh, are writing, you're copying it down, and your brother's looking on your paper as you're writing it down. He's kind of copying what you're copying. And maybe you get a little thing here a little off, you know, from the original letter. And your brother, looking on yours, writes the same thing down. But everybody else in the class, let's say there's 30 of you, everybody else in the class writes it differently. So 28 of you have written it the way it's written on the wall. Two of you got it incorrect. All right. Do you have, and let's say we lose President Biden's letter. Now, can we say that we have a letter from President Biden? Well, yes, we would argue we have 30 manuscripts here. And yes, two of them have one of the sentences different than the other 28. But we have essentially, in essence, uh, that letter. So that's kind of a simple way of illustrating what we're dealing with. Listen, you have more manuscripts of the Bible than you have manuscripts of any other human writing. It's not even comparable. And so if you want to doubt whether you have the Bible, you have to doubt all of Western history and literature. You have, to, you have to become uh, a, a huge skeptic about uh, epistemologically about anything uh, because the, the number of copies of manuscripts does not even compare to the Odyssey or Virgil's Aeneid or any other ancient writing that we have. Not even close. Not even close. So yes, there are different manuscripts out there. There are different schools of manuscripts. That's why you get into the debate. Should you be a King James only? Should you, you know, use uh, more modern translations, those kind of things? I'd be glad to talk to you about that some other time. I'm not an expert, and I don't want to get over my skis too much here on that subject, but that's where some of those debates do come from. But we believe, along with Westminster Divines, that the Bible is inerrant, cannot err, and it is infallible, does not err. It is infallible and inerrant. There are people who I don't understand want to make a distinction between infallibility and inerrancy and hold to, I think it's infallibility while denying inerrancy. 
I don't really get that. The scripture, I think, is clear. How do we know? Well, let's look at what Jesus said about the Bible, shall we? Jesus believed, for example, the historical account of Jonah. When speaking about uh, the sign of the Son of Man's resurrection, they said, show us a sign and we'll believe on you. What did Jesus say? You're not getting another sign except what he said, you're getting the, the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah, boys and girls? The sign of Jonah was when Jonah was swallowed by a great fish and stayed in there, and then the fish vomited him out. In the same way, that was a type, a prefigurement of Jesus' death and resurrection. So Jesus believed in the account of Jonah. A lot of liberals struggle with that. They said, that's not possible. That couldn't be that a historical Jonah was swallowed by a great fish and survived after several days. Well, Jesus certainly believed it. Jesus also believed in a historical Adam and a historical Eve when the Pharisees wanted to find some loopholes so that they could make divorce more permissive. What did Jesus do? Jesus took us back to the garden. He said it wasn't that way in the beginning with the first marriage with Adam and Eve. He, he believed clearly in a historical Adam and a historical Eve. In John chapter 10 and verse 35, Jesus said that the word of God could not be broken. It is inerrant and it is infallible. Everything that the prophets had said and that the Psalms had said and that the law had said must come to pass in Jesus Christ. Jesus elsewhere said not a jot or a tittle would pass away from the law until all had been fulfilled. That is, God's word is more lasting and more firm than the creation itself. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but not the word of God. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the what? The word of God endures. Jesus replied to Satan when Satan was tempting Jesus in his time of fasting in the wilderness. Jesus answered from scripture each time. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. So when personal crises came up in Jesus' life, he appealed to the Bible. Jesus appealed to Scripture when he had to refute uh, Pharisaic legalism. He quotes from Isaiah, In vain do they worship me, uh, because they substituted the traditions of men for the word of God. Now, It is common among liberals to reply to what I've just said, and they'll say, well, Jesus was born into that tradition. It was a part of his humanity, and he had to reflect the culture and the tradition of his day. All right, that's their argument. Jesus had these views of the Bible because he wasn't sophisticated. Okay, his culture wasn't sophisticated. We're sophisticated. We're scientific now. We study the Scriptures in ways that they could never have studied the Scriptures back in those days. And and so because that was a part of Jesus' culture and Jesus' tradition, that's what he adhered to. But that doesn't mean that those views are correct. Well, that has a lot of problems, one of which is suddenly now Jesus himself can't be trusted in what he says, if you hold that view. But listen, on the face of it, Jesus had no problem upsetting the culture when he needed to. I mean, just look what Jesus did when they had corrupted the worship at the temple. And he comes in with a cord of whip, a whip, a whip of cords and overturns the tables. He's not, he's not fearful of upsetting the culture. 
<clears throat> also, secondly, we have to reply to the, um, Oh, so excuse me. The second argument liberals want to make then is this. I'm sorry. No, we are making in response to what the liberals had said. Sorry, I'm misreading my own notes. So they're saying Jesus was born into this tradition, and that's why he believed what he believed. We say, and secondly, that the resurrected Jesus had the same view of Scripture as he did prior to his death. What did Jesus do after his resurrection? He walked with the men on the road to Emmaus. And what did he do? He did a Bible study with them. He said, why are you guys so discouraged and so depressed? Didn't you know these things had to happen? These things were written. And the Bible says that beginning with Moses, Jesus began to show them all these things. Now, what does all these things mean? It means the crucifixion. It means the suffering. Means the death of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah. All these things Jesus said had to take place. And how did Jesus prove this? He proved it by going to the Bible, the scriptures. <clears throat> so we see that after the resurrection, Jesus' view has not changed about the Bible. Now, what about the New Testament? Because they might say, well, yeah, but Jesus was only teaching from the Old Testament. How do you explain then? The New Testament. Maybe you could make it best the case that the Old Testament is the Bible. The Old Testament is the Word of God, but what about the New Testament? Well, here you go to the Upper Room Discourse, which is found sometime on your own. Just read John chapter 13 through 17. Okay, John chapter 13 through 17, those chapters, Jesus is with his disciples. Now, one of the things Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples at that time is what? He's going to leave. He's going to die. He's going to be raised, and he's going to leave them. This is causing emotional distress, as you can imagine, that Jesus should be teaching this. What does Jesus do in, in that context? He seeks to comfort his disciples and say, look, it's better that I go. You have to trust me on this. Because as I go and when I go, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to come into you and he is going to guide you and lead you into the truth so that the things you say, the things you teach, and the things you write will not be just your words, but they will be your words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is a promise that I think a lot of evangelicals don't fully understand. They think, well, that promise is speaking to me. You know, Jesus says, I'll lead you into all truth, and I'm God, Jesus is going to lead me into all truth. Now, I think you can make that application but that's not the meaning. The meaning is he's going to lead the authors of the New Testament into all truth. So that even those who are not his disciples, such as Luke, Luke pens the gospel in the book of Acts, what do we learn? The apostle Paul and others in the New Testament appeal to things that Luke wrote as scripture, that they distort these things as they do the rest of the scriptures, Paul says. And he's referring to something that gets distorted in Luke. <clears throat> so, John 14, verse 26, Jesus also told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance the things that Jesus had taught them during his three years of earthly ministry. So, you, you know, how many times do we have to cover the same ground with these disciples in the Gospels? Again and again, they, they, they seem dense, they seem foggy, they seem like they're not getting it, and yet then later... 
suddenly they're able to preach with such clarity and such power, uh, you know, and, and authority. Well, it's because the Spirit brought them to remember, don't worry about what you're going to say when they arrest you. I will give you the words to speak. I will give you the Holy Spirit and He will help you. He will lead you in that moment into the truth. Now, let me say by way of application for us, because I don't want this only to be just a theological lesson, but also want to apply the theology to our own lives. And the first thing I want to say is it is a great privilege to have a Bible. Do you realize the Roman Catholic Church has tried to keep the Bible out of your hands? It wasn't until the Second Vatican that they started saying, okay, you know, and encouraging their people to have the Bible. That was a, and, and that came through a lot of blood by way of Protestants being put to death. The printing press came into Europe in 1450. And prior to that, the Bible had to be copied by hand. And so the Bible was rare and it was expensive to get one. But as Bibles became uh, more available, more accessible, and cheaper for families to own, uh, God's Word spread and people would uh, give a lot uh, in order to have the Scriptures. And we're blessed with that tradition. The Bible is, we are told, God's Word is more precious than gold. Yea, even than fine gold. Um, In uh, Psalm 19... Now, you know, I was talking earlier, boys and girls, about general revelation and special revelation. Psalm 19 is a special psalm that talks about those two things. If you notice, the first half of Psalm 19 is talking about general revelation. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. But then it goes on, after those six verses on general revelation, then it gets to special revelation. And it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The fear of the Lord is clean and enduring uh, forever. Look at verse 10. The Bible, the commandments of God, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The Bible uh, is valuable. Psalm 119 which we sang from tonight, is also uh, has a lot about the Bible in it. It's a, uh, an acrostic uh, in which the Hebrew letters are there and dividing in that psalm into sections. In uh, verses 12, Psalm 119, verses 12 to 16, <clears throat> read as follows, "'Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes.'" With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth, all of God's ordinances. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. In the Old Testament, we have four sections. We have the law, the five books of Moses. You have the history books, Joshua through Esther. You have the poetic books, Job through the Song of Solomon. And then the prophetic books, Isaiah through Malachi. In the New Testament, you have three divisions. You have the historical books of the Gospels and the book of Acts. You have the doctrinal books of Romans through Jude. And you have the prophets, the book of Revelation. 
The word of God means this, that God is the primary author. God spoke. The scriptures often use the phrase, thus saith the Lord. God sometimes spoke with an audible voice. Sometimes God recorded his word uh, with his own fingers, such as on the ta- uh, Ten Commandments, on the tablets of stone. God spoke through dreams uh, in various ways. We studied in, Re- in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, that in the old times, God spoke to us through, through prophets, through dreams, through visions, etc. But through it all, he was speaking the very word of God to us. Now, what we have to understand is that the church is founded on the scriptures. A lot of people misunderstand this. The Bible is the foundation of the church. The church is built on the words of the apostles and the prophets, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, because they spoke the word of God. So it's not the church determining what's the word of God. It's the word of God determining what's the church. It's the word of God that builds the church. It's the word of God that tells us how the church is to be structured, what we're to do in the church, what we're not to do in the church. So the word, the Bible, is the rule for the faith and practice of the church. It's not the traditions of the church plus the word. It is the word of God alone, which informs the tradition. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, the sufficiency of Scripture for life and for practice. It is the only rule for faith and practice. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says, As many as walk by this rule, the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, speaks about going to the law and to the testimony. And if they will not speak according to this, then we do not give them uh, credence. But those who speak according to the law and the testimony are to be heard. Now, what does the Bible teach fundamentally? Well, the Bible fundamentally teaches two things that we need to know. This is brought out in the Westminster Standards, particularly the catechisms. One is what we need uh, to know concerning ourselves, and the other is our duty to God. It teaches about us and about God. These are two things that all of us must know. We must know God and we must know ourselves and our condition and what we need to do before God. Now again, let me make some final applications as we close tonight here. As I said in a moment ago, it is a privilege to have the Bible. Therefore, let me exhort us all to read it. If you're leaving your Bible unread at home, please read it. You have forefathers and foremothers who died for it. You have, you have uh, Presbyterian foreparents who gave their lives, risked their lives. You have translators who gave their lives in order for you to read it in the vernacular. You, you have businessmen who secretly would smuggle the Bible into countries in order to spread the Word of God. Read the Bible Secondly, meditate on the Bible. Not only should we eat the Bible, but we need to digest. If you eat, but you do not digest, you're a bulimic. You have a problem and a serious health issue. We need to read it, but we need to meditate on it. Use it as a time of discussion. Um, you know, if you're... Um, uh, 
you know, able to do so, you know, memorize verses from it. Talk about it with your family when you sit, when you stand, etc. Give it to others. I remember when I was in high school, I was working in an office and a uh, co-worker of mine gave me a Gideon's New Testament, uh, which I indeed did read some of it when, when it was given to me. Support those who are translating the scriptures in foreign countries. Now, there's, a, there's a video on YouTube that will break your heart. It's in, uh, I believe, Southeast Asia, somewhere in Asia, where they open the crate and they pull out the Bibles and they start handing them out. And the, just the, the tears that come down uh, for this church that has never had copies of the Bible in their own language before. And uh, you see them just holding the Bible and thanking God and praising God for a copy of the Scriptures. Um, we also need to conform our lives to it. William McBrockle gives a few pointers on reading the Scripture. Why, what, what does the Bible do when you read? First of all, he says it, it has the power to convert under the blessing of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and verse 17. God begets within us new life through the word of truth. James chapter 1, verse 18. Being born again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter says, being born again not of a corruptible seed, You're born again by the incorruptible word. So it converts. Number two, it nurtures. 1 Peter chapter 2, 2 says, As newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Number three, it sanctifies our text for tonight. John 17, 7. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Ephesians 6, 17. It is the sword of the spirit. Excuse me. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And then fifthly, Abrakel says, it is the only means of salvation. He says, it is the power of God unto salvation. He cites Romans chapter 1, verse 16. James chapter 1, verse 21, the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. Let me make some final applications again from Abrakel. Abrakel is a Dutch theologian who uh, not only wrote a systematic theology, but probably one of the most applicable systematic theologies you'll ever read. That is, he would teach the theology, but then he would make these real pastoral applications uh, from it. And so five things, five things from Abrakel. Number one, acknowledge, value, and believe the Word of God. Acknowledge, value, and believe the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 says, tells us that the children of Israel in the wilderness, they had the same gospel preached to them, but what? It didn't profit them. Abrakel says, make sure you value the word when it comes to you in your church or at your home. Number two, he says, rejoice over the precious gift of the Bible. Again, as I said earlier, this is not a brockel, but until Vatican II, the Roman Catholic Church tried to keep the Bible out of people's homes, amazingly enough. They hid our people, our Presbyterian fathers, hid in the moors of Scotland, in caves. They were imprisoned on Bass Rock. They had their homes raided by the English so that you, Presbyterian, could have a Bible and sing the Psalms. 
and that you could have a church where Jesus Christ alone was the head of that church. Think well on what you've been given, to whom much is given, much is required. Thank God for the Bible. Psalm 147 in both verses 12 and 19. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise thy God, O Zion. He shows his word unto Jacob. Praise God that he shows his word to his people. His statutes and his judgments unto Israel. Fourthly, make sure you have a Bible or Bibles in your home and that you're reading it. And then fifthly, Abrakel suggests that you purchase Bibles for others, especially for poor people, he says. 